Are you curious about, interested in, or working within the field of anesthesiology and you are a woman, person of color, or otherwise do not fit the stereotypical image of what an anesthesiologist looks like, then this is the podcast for you. We will discuss what life is like on the other side of the blue drape for us. Issues most relevant, such as what is anesthesia really? And we're not talking textbook definition. Tips for applying, success in residency, life as an attending, and beyond. Join us each week as we take a dive into this rich and often misunderstood field. This is your host, Dr. Alicia Peterson, and welcome to Sivo Sisters. Maybe if we study hard enough, work long enough, they will see my value as a black woman. Maybe if I throw that uh, super shiro black girl magic over everything, I tough it out. They'll regard me and praise and value me. But what if we are human and we need sleep, sunlight, praise? I'm excited for you to hear Dr. Avery Hart's story. She reminds us that we are human and deserve all of the care that comes with being one. Hello, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Aisha Avery Hart. We actually met while I was a trainee. Uh, I was a CA two or three And she was the medical student who came in to shadow. And here I am introducing her as a full-blown attending. I recall distinctly, I asked, what programs do you want to go into? And she said she's applying to like, was it 30-something programs? It's (laughs) insane. I was like, why are you applying? And so she's going to share with us her journey, how she got interested in anesthesia, how was training, and then life after. So welcome, Aisha. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for inviting me to be a part of this with you. I really do appreciate it. I'm truly honored. Thank you so much. And before I jump into my story, I did want to congratulate you, first of all, for all of your wonderful successes, too, since residency, doing wonderful, wonderful things, including developing Sivo Sisters podcast, which I think is <laughs> awesome. So I know that you played a big role in my decision, you know, in becoming an anesthesiologist and helping helping me navigate my personal you know, path to the career. So I just love the fact that your positive influence will be even more far reaching now. So I think it's awesome. And congratulations to you. <laughs> oh, thanks so much. I'm touched. You know, this is, this is fun for me. And our experiences mm-hmm. are unique and it really deserves its own, you know, dedicated platform and attention. Thank you. Yes. Totally agree. <laughs> In terms of me and my story, and yes. it definitely is not what we consider linear. <laughs> yes. Good, good. I feel as non-traditional in every sense of the word, if you will. So uh-huh. I was one, an older student. I was a career changer. So I worked in engineering before I even got into medical school. Um, so that made me very different. <laughs> a lot of my classmates being a doctor was their first job ever. So I was like, oh, well, yeah, I can't really relate there. Um, <laughs> um, being a Black woman, of course, helps, you know, made me stand out even more. So yeah, I can definitely speak to that. You know, how long were you an engineer for? 
So I have always described myself as one of those weird people who like plans my life way in advance. <laughs> so I actually chose my major as a 12 year old, believe it or not. I became familiar with the term biomedical engineering and like saw different documentaries and stories about it. I was like, you know what, this is perfect. I loved science growing up. I was always involved in different STEM activities and gadgets was always a fun thing to me too. So I was like, oh, it combines my love of the human body and gadgets is perfect. Like, so that's when I established that that was going to be my college major. And believe it or not, I never deviated from that. That is in fact what I received my degree in. Um, and through my university, um, we did have an opportunity to work through what we call our co-op engineering program, which essentially gave us an opportunity to gain a year of real world work experience before we graduated, therefore, you know, making us more marketable than say, uh, they're just, you know, someone fresh out of school. So I definitely took advantage of that. And that is the turning point I would say for me. That is when I was exposed to corporate America and the politics that go along with it. And I quickly saw that this is not for me. I'm not, <laughs> this is not going to work, which was very disappointing um, because again, I had imagined this since I was 12, like, oh, I'm going to work it with these other great minds. We're going to develop all these cool new devices to help people all over the uh -huh. world. And there was just a lot of bureaucracy that I did not know about, you know, just uh -huh. being naive and red tape and things that just, I did not know were a part of it. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to be able to do this and be happy. So I have to come up with my plan B expeditiously. <laughs> oh, okay. So wait, you know, it's, it looks like, as you were saying that, that, that you had a moment, like that sentinel moment where you're like, that's it. I'm done. I have to switch gears. Can you, can you tell us what that moment was for you that made you say you have to look at something else? Uh, probably a few things, but to sum it all up into one statement, it was probably seeing, again, how I was being treated as the only Black person in the whole team. So um, there were actually people on my team that told me that I shouldn't pursue any higher degrees. You know, I was thinking of doing master's and then eventually becoming a PhD in engineering. And some people outright told me like, oh, that's too difficult. Don't you think that's too hard? You should just, you know, stop there and I was just seeing that how even compared to other students who were there rotating and doing the co-op engineering program, people weren't having the exact, you know, the same experience that I was. So it was just really discouraging, which I'm sure that's what they were trying to do. Um, but even outside of that, just looking at how it really just wasn't what I envisioned. You know, it was more, you know, paperwork and making sure this is submitted on time and, you know, typing up this proposal and, you know, different projects versus sitting and imagining all these, you know, new innovative products that I was thinking I would be doing. And it wasn't anything like that. So. Okay. No more to the mechanical part, but you're going to pursue the medical part. Yes. So I always thought the human body was super fascinating. My mother is actually a registered nurse and she had her nursing manuals and anatomy and physiology books all over the house. And I would thumb through them for fun and see how many bones I could memorize and how many muscles I could memorize, you know, just as a kid, even before I got to, you know, middle school and above. So um, the human body was always just fascinating to me. And again, I always liked gadgets. I was one of those kids who would be taking stuff apart and putting it back together. <laughs> so the interworkings of different things was always fascinating to me. And the body is the most fascinating of all machines, in my opinion. So it's like, it's really the marriage of those two ideas that really appealed to me. So Med school was the next best option. Um, when I came back from that, 
my last summer um, during co-op engineering, I made arrangements to complete my last pre-op or excuse me, prerequisites for medical school. So the only thing I had remaining was organic chemistry. So I made sure I registered for that and I was pretty much set up to start preparing for the MCAT. So <laughs> um, I know that you mentioned yes. you were the only black person, but were you also like pretty much one of few women as well? Yes, I was the only yeah. girl there. Yes. Wow, <laughs> Every wow. other co-op engineering student in that particular company that I was based at, I was the only black woman there. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and really, it didn't sound like you being the only one was what bothered you. It was their discouragement of your advancement yeah. in the field that really just turned you off. Okay. Absolutely. And I can say I had plenty of experience in being the only one, <laughs> a professional token, so to speak. I, you know, that wasn't a, an issue because the different spaces that I was in, you know, for one, being so interested in STEM at an early age, there weren't a whole lot of kids who would volunteer their weekends to go do science projects. Like that was fun for me. But <laughs> so I was used to being the only one, but the different treatment. And again, it's all about, you know, just being naive and believing one thing and kind of you know, just making this fantasy world of what I thought things were, but reality hit me, you know, really hard during that rotation, which, I mean, it's good and bad, you know, it showed me, you know, what to expect in the real world, um, and bad just because it was disappointing to me as a, you know, young adult, but it was good to have that exposure earlier on, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I, and I will say, just going back to what you said earlier about being that weird kid who plans out their future years in advance, (laughs) welcome. I feel like so many of us do that. Uh, you are a yeah. your brethren here. Exactly. Checklist for everything. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, um, tell us about your medical school uh, career and, and how you even knew about anesthesia. My med school story. So that was, again, the part of that nonlinear path I was speaking of before. So um, after getting the prerequisites for medical school, I did go on to work as an engineer out in industry um, for a very you know, popular major uh, medical device company. I worked for them for maybe two or three years, transitioned throughout different departments with, you know, the entire time I have in mind, how am I making myself more marketable for medical school? So <laughs> I started transitioning to more clinical positions for the company to add that to my resume. Um, and all the while after work, I'm trying to study for the MCAT. So it was really tough because I was, you know, working a lot of hours as a full-time employee and then having to come home and force myself to stay up, you know, all throughout the night to prepare for this exam. So fast forward a few other positions. I have a book worth of rejection letters, honestly, from different medical schools and <laughs> just continue to try. And I finally was able to get my foot through the door through a post program. So that is how I initially got my way into medical school. And throughout that process is when I started seeking out different doctors I could mentor who were, you know, open to allowing medical students to come, you know, shadow them for the day. And that's when I was, that's when I really knew that I wanted to do anesthesiology. Honestly, nothing else interested me, honestly. (laughs) So people are often like, well, how did you know that you wanted to do this? Well, I know I didn't like anything else. That's, (laughs) that's like really the short answer. Nothing else interested me. So (laughs) Yeah, I I totally can see that. Now, I want to highlight for the listeners that you mentioned a book book worth of rejections and you kept going. Uh, What drove you during that time, which many people would be just so discouraged? What made you say, I'm going to I'm going to keep going for it. You know, you, you just need one. Yes. 
Um, I was not deterred because of people I saw making it. You know, there aren't a whole lot of us. You don't usually see a lot of our faces. And But the people who even were outside of our community, I'm like, if that person can do it, I know I can. Yeah. And, <laughs> and just knowing, you know, <laughs> I just knew that I was, you know, capable of doing it. I just needed someone to offer me the, the chance to show them that. So I was really grateful for um, Rosalind Franklin University just to yeah. put out some props for them. But that was where I was participating in the post program that eventually put me into the medical school program there. So nice. (laughs) And then when you mentioned you reached out to physicians, uh, you know, what made you reach out to an anesthesiologist? Were you kind of just going down the list of specialties and saying, okay, you know, shadow that one, shadow that one. My starting place was actually finding alumni from the medical school. So doctors who had gone on to practice in the local area from our medical school. Um, So I figured, well, they'll feel bad for me. You know, I'm a medical student and they were once in my position. So they'll surely tell me yes. So (laughs) I was very happy that they didn't, you know, did in fact allow me to shadow them. Um, But I guess, again, just going back to my background and my interest in gadgets and the, you know, the body and things like that. So anesthesiology, again, just kind of encompassed everything that I liked. I got to play with gadgets. You know, I'm still, you know, heavily involved with physiology. Um, The other thing I think is, in terms of my personality, um, liking to see immediate results or that instant gratification. I love the fact that we, you know, will administer medications and, you know, do different things that will immediately yield the type of physiological response that we want. I like that, you know, you don't have to wait, you know, months, years down the line to wait for say physical therapy to eventually lead to something else. Like, nope, I'm giving this now and it results in what I want to see. So that really Mm -hmm. fascinated me as well. Great. So, okay. So we see what attracted you to anesthesia. And I want to highlight that you took that initiative and your approach was to reach out to the alumni. That, I mean, Mm -hmm. that's great because you already know you have a connection with them through Mm -hmm. training at the same place, going to medical school at the same place. So that that's an excellent strategy because so many Mm -hmm. students are like, how do I cold email these people? And it's like, well, Mm -hmm. they have an alumni group. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, exactly. reach out to them. That's excellent. Uh, and so then how did it go with applying to residency? And tell us about that process, because you <laughs> just you went like, wow, <laughs> like every further. <laughs> so I met Dr. Peterson while I was doing one of my away rotations in anesthesia, I believe, um, while I was in St. Louis or St. Louis, I completed an obstetrics. Um, anesthesia, rotation, and pediatrics. So I did both of those at that institution. And that's when I was so, so happy to have met Dr. Peterson and sit down with her between cases and kind of talk to her about my game plan and what I was doing, which is when she told me, it's like, okay, you're doing way too much. Like (laughs) my list of (laughs) residency programs. And I was just in the mindset, like, yeah, I'm going to go broke from these application fees, but I need to cast my net as wide as I can so that, you know, I'll definitely get a, a yes from someone, surely. So um, she did help me hone it down and weed out different programs that I definitely would not have been a good fit for me, you know, thinking back. So I'm so grateful to her to, you know, for helping me hone in on my list. So <laughs> it made a huge difference. <laughs> no, it, it's definitely my pleasure. I just I, I just could not let you do that. I'm like, you, <laughs> you know, I, I think so many of us fall into forgetting how valuable we are as candidates for the field. And and because yeah. we forget how valuable we are, we don't we're not selective. 
And it's like, you're going to be spending a lot of time at this hospital and many years here. And Mm -hmm. so we really do have to think about what's, what makes sense for who we are. Um, And, and so, so that saves time and that allows you to just really focus so that when you open your match envelope, you like what you see, right? (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. And it makes a big difference. I did see you know, I'm sure everyone can recall match day and seeing some of their classmates exactly. just devastated and like the world is over for them. I was like, it's, it's going to be okay though. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you know, nobody's saying you have to rank every place that you interview, right? Mm-hmm. You have a choice. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> uh, you then match at your program. I did, which I was very, very happy about during the interview process. Really, I made a few connections with some of the attendings there and they seem to really like me and I, I like them. It's like, oh, this is going to be great. We already like each other and I haven't even started yet. So, And were there any issues as far as, you know, during this time having to take boards, anything like that? So intern year, I tell you, <laughs> we try not to discourage up and coming doctors, but it's a bear. It really is. It's a lot to juggle. It's a new environment, new type of work that you've never done before. You are now the doctor, you know, people are coming to you for information. You know, you're, you're there, you're a doctor. Now you're working as a physician. So this is what you've been working towards and wanting, but it's all scary all at once because it's just happening, you know, all at the same time. Um, So studying for exams was definitely tough. One of the biggest things I had to learn during intern year was time management skills (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I would be one of those residents at the hospital you know, just too late at night, really working on charts and trying to make sure all of my orders are just so and everything is perfect. And, you know, just making sure that I was on my P's and Q's all the time. But that ended up causing me to miss out on a lot of sleep and <laughs> a lot of self-care that did not take place. Again, it's a lesson learned. So, And what did you do your intern year in? In internal medicine. Okay. So a lot of admissions. Oh my goodness. That's <laughs> that also kind of reinforced the fact that I do not want to do that. Like, <laughs> like yeah. that this is my last year of this because I do not want to be sitting around rounding for hours and hours and writing notes for more hours. It, like it just isn't for me. Preach it to the choir. And then um, you know, tell us about how your journey would differ from you know, what people would think of, oh yeah, CA1, CA2, CA3, you know, done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So back to that non-traditional <laughs> yeah. thing I was mentioning before. So not only being older than most of, I was at actually the same age as some of my attendings, which was interesting, but you know, <laughs> that's what happens when you start over, but it was fine. During my intern year, I unfortunately started to experience some unusual symptoms in, you know, just kind of we learn with our own health that we put that on the back burner because we have all this work to do. We have to see all these patients and pre-round and round and, you know, it's just, it's easy to forget about yourself. And I I did that. And after a few days of just, you know, continuing to work and not seeing any improvement in what was going on with me, I was like, okay, I'm just going to go to an urgent care place on one of my off days and we'll just see what they say. What kind of symptoms were you experiencing? Um, Having numbness and like just loss of sensation over a large area of my body. Oh, wow. <laughs> nothing I'd ever experienced before, but I was just like, ah, whatever. I still got to, you know, do this work. And I'm, you know, so you're doing this I work. Think I maybe a did, week. You're doing this work and like half your body is numb. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The sacrifice. I was running to codes and <laughs> couldn't feel that side of my, yeah, it was, wow. <laughs> it was crazy. 
but yeah, at all. Huge. Like it was just continuous numbness. <laughs> like this is, let me make sure I didn't have a stroke or something. So that was when I just went ahead and, you know, bit the bullet and went to an urgent care facility. And I went there thinking they would tell me, oh, just sleep it off. It's fine. It's nothing. But they had a, a much greater sense of urgency for the symptoms I was describing. And they told me to get to the emergency room ASAP. I'm trying to explain to them, I can't, I got to go to work in the morning. I have to round and, you know, just again, putting the job and the expectations of an intern before my own health. So um, I ended up listening to them. I did go to the emergency room, got scanned and fast forward, ended up being diagnosed with a very, very serious chronic um, neurological condition. Um, pretty certain that I, through the, you know, just constant stress, not sleeping, not eating properly, not drinking, and just, you know, pushing myself, running on fumes for so long that I, you know, you know, went through the rest of residency, um, you know, still keeping up with all of my, you know, requirements as a resident, never wavered at all with that. People didn't even know anything was wrong, honestly, because, you know, I'm so used to playing everything off anyway, but, (laughs) but it didn't hamper anything in terms of, you know, my performance as a resident, but it was challenging in that I knew I could not continue working the way that I was. I, I have to stop and actually make a change and do something for myself, um, which is, and this is not, not immediately, but later on the, down the line, I did end up requesting accommodations and taking advantage of, of that for residents with disabilities, which I should have done much sooner, but you know, it, it hit me eventually. Yeah. <laughs> so I and did, no, you know, apply I mean, for that. You're now looking back, you're like, why didn't I get help sooner? Like what was going on? You know, but when mm-hmm. we're in the trenches, like you just go, go, go. What made you have the courage to even ask for the accommodations? Because many, I mean, many of us are unaware that we can even request that. But then mm-hmm. even when you can request it, some people are really ashamed to ask for the help that they yeah. need. Um, but I'm glad you mentioned that. The one thing that really made me say, no, I have to stop. I have to do something different. I have to you know, use the resources that I have available. After seeing one of my attendings, one of the attendings that I really loved, he was a great teacher. He was kind, a special person to me. And I saw him actually um, being diagnosed with a neurological condition. I would see him in passing when I was on appointments with my doctor, my neurologist. And I would see him was like, oh, no, you know, I didn't want anyone to know that I was a patient there, too. So, <laughs> so I was hoping he thought I was just kind of passing through. But seeing him and honestly seeing how he deteriorated and how they continue to he was one of the newer attendings, I should say that. So um, you may know that there's a hierarchy, essentially, when, <laughs> when new attendings are joining practices. So Absolutely. they took advantage of that and they worked this man a lot. They eventually worked him literally to death. He ended up passing away um, during the course of my residency. And I saw, you know, he was in a similar boat. He was working very hard, trying to meet all these different demands. No one cared that, you know, he wasn't feeling well. It was, I want to see this work. The work needs to get done. And we're so used to self-sacrifice and putting the expectations of, you know, over our own health and well-being. And I was doing the same. But after seeing what happened to him and how, it was still, you know, business as usual after he passed away, like nothing halted, nothing stopped. There was no time for mourning or grief. It was like, okay, I see these patients get back to work. That made me, you know, stop and think, okay, my health is my health. I, if I can't help any patients if I'm not taking care of myself. I see that, you know, work is going to be there regardless, but I have to make sure I'm taking care of me in order for me to be able to take care of patients, not just during residency, but beyond. So I had to really think of my future and making sure that I was doing the best thing for me in the long run. 
Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, it was really a cautionary tale for you that if you don't shift gears, this can be your trajectory. And I think it's important for all of us to, to realize that, hey, medicine is going to be there. If you don't take mm-hmm. care of yourself, no one else will. Saw how they just like kept going uh, in the midst mm-hmm. of this man who sacrificed his life. By the nature of just who we are, we are inherently valuable. We don't need to be out here hustling our life away, our health away, our well-being away. Your wellness matters and it takes priority. Through Dr. Avery Hart's story, we see that self-care is actually a bold act of courage. You are going to have to be courageous if you are going to partake in the field of medicine without it consuming you. We assume surely I'm taking care of patients. The organization will take care of me. I'm sorry to have to break it to you. But no, you have to take care of you. As physicians, we're big rule followers. We want to go along and get along. But this is your life. And you're going to have to stand up and make some demands. Remember, you are inherently valuable. Make your demands. Be strong. Courageous. Take care of yourself. Because as Dr. Avery Hart has shown us, your life may depend on it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Sivo Sisters. If you love this episode as much as I did, head on over and rate and subscribe so you don't miss out. New episodes drop every week on a Monday because we all can use a little something, something to get us through the week. Am I right? I'd love to hear more from you on the topics that you want to hear. So let me know in the comments. This is Dr. Peterson signing off. See you next time.